for your intro? Yeah, well, for anything, it, it, it just does weird stuff sometimes. It's worth the money. We're listening. We're good. Everybody's there. Welcome to the Everyday Sniper, and we got a fan favorite here with us today. I'm on the line with Phil Vallejo, and uh, he's here to talk to us in this offseason. He's just finished with the finale and everything else going on out there. Welcome back to the podcast, Phil. Great to have you on. Hey, Frank. Thanks for having me back. Long time no talk. Yeah, we were just talking about that. It's been like September, I think. August or September was the last time we had you on. Uh, which is actually a pretty big gap, but we just, uh, our schedules were all over the place. You're teaching and competing. I'm running around too. So it was, you know, just trying to get linked up again. Uh, how's everything been going? Uh, getting ready for your holiday season? Yeah. Um, so everything's going well. I'm just uh, really busy this year with uh, Gomer's classes. Um, last year we stopped in about October. And then this year we actually continued uh, classes throughout November and, and December. So I actually just got back from Texas doing uh, three classes down there. And uh, I've got classes this week um, to, to, to end off the season. And yeah, uh, just getting ready for the holiday season. How about yourself? Yeah, same thing. Just getting the site all. I'm doing a bunch of like maintenance stuff on the site because I want to have some new things out there for 2020. And so wrapping everything up and then trying to get myself, I feel like thrown down with all kinds of gear and shit. I want to clean up my office and just get my head back into like the new year, you know? Yeah. Do you have any projects coming up for uh, 2020? No, not the usual. I mean, I, the, there, there's always the request. I actually been turning down a lot of requests for like reviews and different things. There's always projects that are sort of on the horizon and I'm, I'm behind just from having such a crazy training schedule that I don't want to, you know, take on new stuff until I finished everything else. One of the projects I am looking at is I talked with Ray from Thunder Beast, and I was going to do a video, kind of like Precision Rifle Blog did a, a muzzle brake video, a bunch of different muzzle brakes and recoil properties, and so I was putting together a, a deal to do that. But it just was never right. The wind was throwing my stuff around out here because we've had just crazy winds. Well. Uh, Ray came up and said his new sound meter has other meters that will plug into it. And one of them, he could test recoil and do all that. So I think I'm going to go up to Wyoming up there, just a Thunder Beast, and, and play with some of the muzzle brakes with um, their BK system that can actually measure recoil, you know? So that's one project that I'm going to actually be pulling the trigger on finally because it was just so hard to try to do this muzzle brake video sort of manually with, with everything getting knocked around because I was trying to be really precise with like a grid and where everything lined up on the grid so you can see through slow motion video the movement against the grid. But, you know, you'd start to film it and then the next thing you know, the wind would knock my grid away or mess with stuff. So it was it was getting to be a pain in the neck to try to do it how I wanted to. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's pretty cool. I, I think... Um you know, I, I try to do, you know, when I test muzzle brakes or, or whatever, when I'm testing recoil management, it's, it's always hard to, I mean, the prone is the prone, right? It is what it is, but you know, when you get yourself in, into different shooting positions, kneeling, standing, whatever kind of support you're using, and, you know, depending on where you're displacing your, or putting your support hand, whether it be on top of the scope or, 
along the uh, forearm, forearm there, um, you always get different kind of uh, results, you know, um, you know, the, especially because just like anything else, the, the type of pressure you're pushing forward against the stock is ultimately going to change the, the full harmonics of that rifle coming back. Right. Um, so it's always hard to gauge, you know, unless you're, you're truly free, really cooling that rifle every single shot during your testing, which I, I don't like to do. So yeah, yeah. Right. The whole free recoil <laughs> thing. Um, what's like, since we're kind of talking about some of that, what's some of the things that like you do or tell, I'm sure people ask you all the time, um, like your off season practice, getting ready for 20, uh, you know, 2020 and the new shooting season. Is there anything that like people are emailing you or, or contacting you to say, Hey, what can I do to, you know, to, to perform like Phil in competition? So do, are you fielding those kind of questions? Yeah, I, I always get, uh, Hey, what, what, what's your kind of reset button? Well, I, I guess what's your, what's your kind of steps that you go through. So, um, right now I'm actually going through a, a, a big, um, my reloading bench. First time I actually started touching my reloading bench since uh, earlier this season um, was last two weeks ago, getting ready for the uh, NRL championship. But pretty much uh, last April was the last time I touched it. So now I'm just trying to figure out my brass and stuff like that. What's, you know, what's good brass and how many fired. Uh, But, you know, from the reloading standpoint, just getting all my stuff together, um, figuring out, you know, what barrels I need for next season, what matches I'm going to shoot, you know, so kind of all that administrative stuff. Um, numbers wise, but as far as, uh, you know, practice, what I like to do is actually, you know, start from the, the scratch and, um, you know, break my position down Barney style as simple as that sounds. And, you know, really work through uh, my shooters checklist, um, and, you know, making sure I'm, I'm cognitively thinking about it and, and kind of tweaking it as I go, uh, you know, surprisingly enough, you know, I've, I've made a lot of changes along the way even from when I initially started teaching, you know, long range shooting to, to now, I mean, uh, <clears throat> kind of, you know, pressure of what I'm putting with my hand placement or, uh, you know, forward loading the bipod or, you know, keeping both eyes open. Um, you know, the biggest thing that, that is, is always hard to kind of ingrain into my checklist is, um, checking for can in between each shot. Um, that's, that's one of the, the hardest things to kind of get wrapped around in my, uh, um, my cycle of operations, you know, you take a shot and kind of when you're in the zone, the last thing that you want to check is, um, is, is your can't cause it's like, okay, I connected run the bolt, send another one, you know, without having to check. And I usually check it before my first shot, but when I start, you know, getting into the swing of things, uh, the, the my anti can't devices is, is always gets lost in the wind, but we notice um, yeah, that all the time. I mentioned that constantly is that guys will look at everything prior, like their pre-shot workup and that bubble level might be one of the things they check. But then once they're in that zone, exactly like you said, it's they, they no longer see it. It's like out of their mind and they're really focused on that one thing through the optic and they're not looking at the other stuff. And so we'll see guys, you know, they're good on shot one. They're not bad. Everything's pretty good on shot two. Shot three is a little bit worse. You know, shot four, they might see a can't appear now and they'll fix it. And then shot five has that little bit of kind of, you know, wiggle to it. So uh, we, we notice that a lot. I, you probably notice it in classes too. Uh, you know, guys get into that that zone and everything. And then, you know, each shot just gets a little worse. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think it, it, it just stems from, you know, uh, that, that cognitive thought process of, okay, you know, everything should be muscle memory. 
but at the same time, it's like, well, you know, something like this is as quickly as it, you know, it could be achieved, right. It could, it could obviously save you, um, in the long run, um, with, you know, whether you're a competitive shooter, tactical shooter or hunter, right. Uh, delivering a follow-up shot is, is, is probably more important than taking that initial shot because, you know, um, when you take your initial shot, especially in a environment that's very unknown, you know, when winds are pretty crazy, it's like, you know, shit happens you miss you make a bad wind call it's like okay that second shot is super important because well i need to make my correction and in order for me to make a correction appropriately well i need to be shooting in the same exact condition that i took my first shot and that includes not having cant in my rifle right so we noticed that with the like doing work back in the day the rifles only days it, with the foreign uh militaries uh that especially the the, the tier one guys when they become professional snipers, they are not in and out of a unit like the, the U.S. guys do. So basically, once they're in that, that high-end unit and they're a sniper for them, that's their only job. They put 10 times more emphasis on somebody's ability to correct and follow up that second shot than they do on the first shot or the first round hit. Because exactly what you said, how practical is it to basically scoop a guy out of where he is and plop him somewhere in the world and expect him to be able to analyze the conditions and to, you know, beat the conditions when it's the, you know, they may be seeing it, you know, they're all night. They're, they're basically, they walk in in the middle of the night, the sun's just coming up. So what really do they have experience wise in that AO? Not much. And so being able to correct it with a second shot follow-up is is a, a true test in 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 their mindset yeah so let me ask you this uh frank how long would you think you know because you travel you know all around the uh, nation to teach classes and stuff like that how long do you think it takes for you to get calibrated to the wind conditions um at, at a range uh it can be it could be like the minnesota is a good example because minnesota had really tricky winds the way that range was cut uh, and, and they do a lot of prs events and things up there but the way their kd range was set up it had like water features in between the yard lines it had uh you know part swamp part woods with a a, a bunch of winds and so i would say like when I'm spotting people, it takes me more than a full day of watching what's going on to be able to say, okay, now I kind of get what this range is doing. But there's always nuances that I'll miss. And I had a discussion up in that Minnesota range with their vice president, former Jarhead, who's actually a Palma champion, um, shoots Palma, uh, you know, uh, on the high level as one th their events uh, in what I don't know what Palma calls it. But he basically is a big-time Palma shooter. And so him and I were talking the wind and the range and everything that was going on there. And, he, you know, the, the nuances he was looking at were so much more or so much smaller than what I was because we've all, like, rotated into better calibers where with the Palma, he's still shooting a 155-308. So winds are going to be a much bigger deal to him. And, and so it was interesting to get his nuanced perspective on what I was seeing. So I would say to if I really wanted to acclimatize myself pretty well to a condition, I would want a minimum 
a three days, and that would be three full days, you know, of watching people shoot and what the wind's doing and, and just being tied up in that to basically say, well, I have a handle on what this range can offer. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I would definitely venture to say, you know, home, home field advantage, I don't care what competitive shooter out there thinks that that's not a thing, that's such a big thing. Right. Cause you know, when you spend X amount of days on the range, the same exact range, like you, you know what the mirage looks like and, and uh, you know, sometimes it's deceiving and it's like, okay, even though I think the mirage is 10 miles an hour because it's the way it appears, sometimes it's not really blowing that way. And you know, okay, well the way the, that this range cuts the wind, I'm going to cut my wind in half or whatever the case is. Right. So I know my range in Wyoming, like the back of my hand, I'm able to make my wind calls for my students. Every time I travel, like you said, it takes me at least a good two full days being on class to be, really be able to predict the wind, you know, and, and I'm getting, like, you know, initial wind calls uh, down to about, you know, a minute to two minutes uh, of angle. Sorry. I, I, we use minutes at Gunworks. So, yeah, you know, cool. three or yeah, three to six tenths. Right. Um, which I think is, you know, respectable for a practical, practical hunter, but you know, for a competitive shooter, it's like, you know, you know, he's able, he's, he's trying to get his wind call, every wind call down to, you know, the two or three tenths because that's how much of uh, error that he has, you know, uh, when he's shooting at MOA and two MOA targets. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think one thing I, I do love about traveling the nation and, and shooting competitions is, you know, the way I look at it from a sniper's perspective is like every one of these matches that I go to is a different battle space that I can try to dominate, right? Of, of trying to figure out, okay, how, what is my probability of making a first round impact, you know, uh, given these conditions and stuff like that, because it all ultimately translates to a sniper's role and how to educate him in, in that. Cause I'm not sure if you've ever shot at range 117 on Camp Pendleton, um, but it's a nightmare to shoot on. Um, it's a typical, uh, you know, KD, uh, you know, known distance from 100 to 1,000. And, you know, a lot of times our students are reading off uh, Mirage off the burns because, you know, if you're looking at 117, there's no other vegetation um, to, to use, to utilize, to, to be able to gauge a wind call, right? So a lot of it is just based off of what the Mirage looks like and kind of that shot and plot me method because um, when you went through school, you're shooting on paper, right? From 300 all the way a thousand. Yeah. And, even our UKD stuff was paper. Um, okay. Cardboard. You know what I mean? So when we put yeah. out the silhouettes for UKD, we use the green paper, um, the yeah. cardboard uh, Ivans. <clears throat> and, you know, unfortunately, you know, with that kind of mentality, it's like, honestly, what a student's going to do, especially with them being really new into long range shooting. I mean, all they're going to do is like, okay, well, if they missed off the right, they're going to measure it. And then they're going to just make the correction, right, without actually doing what? Well, verifying if that wind condition is the same exactly where they shot in the first place. So a lot of it is just kind of reading what's on the board and making the correction off that versus actually getting a, you know, real feedback of, okay, that's where my, that's where my trace was. That's where I missed out, say, immediate correction and so on and so forth. Because, you know, when you're shooting in the pits, right, there's like a, I'd say like seven, 10 second delay. Right. So mm -hmm. someone, someone shoots and then now, you know, the reaction for it to pull it down, find the impact and then throw it back up. Right. Um, you know, usually 10 to 15 seconds per shot, especially when you start getting out to those further distances. Yeah. I mean, the only time they ever did anything is when they, when they wagged the movers is when you would only get some kind of instant feedback 
And even yeah. that was a second for the guy. But totally in, uh, you know, full disclosure, I've actually never been on Pendleton. But you guys are kind of like high desert with nothing but scrub and sand, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, every every range poses its own challenges, um, you know, obviously. But, you know, I, I think, you know, what, what's, you know, I guess at the end of the day, you know, for experienced shooter, I would say, you know, it takes them really a good full two to three days to, uh, to calibrate themselves to figure out what the wind is truly doing. Um, you know, just at the, at the, uh, NRL championship, you know, I had a uh, squatted with a bunch of great guys, Tate Schreeder, John Pinch. I mean, those guys were uh, able to read the wind, uh, pretty damn well, but, uh, the wind conditions on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, were all completely different. So like, Friday we had right to left wind, a con- consistent wind. Uh, Saturday we had switchbacks. You know how that goes. You know head head and tail winds, and then um, Sunday we had a full left to right wind uh, at like ten to fifteen miles an hour, right? So it's like, dang, you know we got we got all three we got all three different types of winds in in, in three days. Nice. And, and you know, what's funny too, is kind of when you back up to like the 308 days, I, you, you talk about the winds with the guys with the, the, the zippy calibers, you know, guys start like looking at this, like, Oh damn, what am I going to do when they have like a 1.5, almost two mil wind hold. But you know, we look at 308s and stuff and you almost always had a three mil wind hold at a thousand yards, like three to three and a half mils is pretty typical. And you know, we never see that anymore. Guys going, I mean, people freak out when they start moving behind that, beyond that two mil mark with their current calibers. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, 100%. And, and honestly, um, you know, you could definitely tell a lot by a shooter, uh, that is not used to making big corrections, uh, when they miss in the same spot. Right. Um, so, you know, case in point, we were following a squad, um, and, uh, a lot of them were struggling in the heavy winds and, you know, obviously with our squad, I mean, we were able to get done with stages pretty quick. So we, we hopped to the next stage and we're kind of observing the squad in front of us and, you know, they'd shoot, you'd see them miss off one side and, you know, you're like, okay, you know, that's about a four or five tenth correction. And then you see them shoot in the same exact spot. Right. Um, and it, you know, consistently trending, I would say, um, and I say this to people all the time, um, I'd say 90% of the shots that most people take, they're probably only holding edge of the target, right? Mm-hmm. So the second that they come outside of a mill or uh, two mills, right, um, their ability to actually pause and make a correction, right, um, because usually immediately – because let's say they're holding two mils, they, they, they're, they're, they're holding instead of dialing uh, for a competition. So when they hold two mils, break their wind call, after they've recovered from the process of recoil and actually thought about it, most of the time they usually, um, when, they, when they come back in their senses and their scope, a lot of them probably drive that scope back to center mass instead of that two mil hold. Does that make sense? Yes. Right. So then now they waste that second, two second, realize, oh, crap, I wasn't holding center mass. I was holding two mils. And then by that time, well, the bullets already splashed. And now they're trying to figure out, well, how much over did I miss? You you know what I mean? Um, And I actually did a video a couple of years ago on like NPA in the wind, because you'll get the guys that'll muscle on those heavy winds, the beyond the two, three mil mark. and And they're actually moving a lot more than they realize 
Yep. And and like you're saying, their MPA is to the center of the reticle, but now they start steering it with their shoulders to get that yep. wind call. And that's when they'll end up messing up. And, and you'll see them start to do the same thing over and over again because their MPA is bringing them right back to where they were. And they aren't really fixing the wind call because they've muscled it with their shoulder and haven't popped their hips over with them. That's right. That's right. So we're talking all this. Let's go into, because you brought up before we started this, you wanted to talk on um, the precision rifleman. And I think this would lend right into what you were kind of talking about uh, before we went on air, that, you know, looking at the individual as a precision rifleman versus sort of a comp shooter, you know, a little bit more well-rounded guy versus somebody who focuses in their training to, you know, sort of execute a specific task. Yeah. So, you know, um, I w- would you, would you um, agree that, you know, the precision rifle sport is still probably one of the fastest growing shooting sports um, out there? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, so with, with that, I mean, what I'm starting to see is kind of, you know, you know, these shooters jumping into, you know, this discipline um, and look I, I don't know, not really asking themselves, you know, what, what they want to get out of it. Right. Um, you know, and at, at the end of the day, I get it. It's a, it's a game. Right. Uh, but for everyone that knows me, I, I got into it because a, I wanted to put my money where my mouth was as an instructor and B, I wanted to see what I could take from the competitive side of the house and bring it to, um, the sniper community. Um, because, you know, contrary to pop belief, um, <laughs> We don't shoot all the time, and we don't get paid to shoot. Right. Uh, the the average sniper shoots uh, forty rounds every six months out of a, a bolt action sniper rifle, right? And obviously, that's not enough to stay proficient. So, um, all the rest know, of the time, you're walking from point A to point B just to get there. That's right, uh, <laughs> undetected, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, with with a hundred pounds of bullshit on your back, <laughs> <laughs> and so, calling in uh, every hour on the radio yeah. to tell them you're still walking. <laughs> hundred pounds of bullshit that doesn't even work when you get there. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, the, what Ken and I have been talking about, you know, lately is, is kind of, you know, figuring out, all right, well, what's, what's our, what's our niche in this sport? Where, where do we fit in? You know? Um, and I think the idea is, you know, under, you know, coining the term precision rifleman and, and what a precision rifleman is, is, is someone that is using the the competitive rifle sport to just be better at his craft, whether he's you know a law enforcement shooter, military shooter, or even a hunter. Um, and honestly, you know, when you're law enforcement, military, I mean, you don't care where your SDs or ESs are, right? Um, yeah, it was it was nice to know when I first first found that out was when I was in instructor at cyber school. But at the end of the day, I mean, now with that information. You know, uh, most practical engagements, you know, are not thousand yard shots on 20 by 40s, right? On full size people. It's like, you know, most average engagement, especially in an urban environment, it's, you know, three to 600 yards. Well, when you, when you cut the data, even with an ES of 40 at three to 600 yards with a 308, I mean, you're talking less than a tenth to two tenths of uh, adjustment uh, up or down that you're going to miss, you know, based off your intended point of aim. Right. Well, so and, and really it's not is, like you can ask for different ammo too. It, right. Right. So, you know, the, the, 
the rifle precision precision rifleman is not worried about SD or ESs. He's more worried about okay, how quickly can I get into this position and get out of it and get my shot off on a you know uh, <clears throat> on a uh, uh, target that's not completely exposed, right? Uh, and, and be able to judge the wind as as, as quickly as possible. You know, um, he's not he's not worried about spending hours on the bench to try to figure out his node right that's going to work in his rifle yada 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 right where, where you kind of see most of these guys kind of trending to right now um you know he's not trying to add weight to his rifle because he's having a hard time controlling the effects of recoil does that make sense yeah totally you know he's he's figured out okay well this is my rifle setup because this is what i'm going to operate with well how can i you know position my body to best man to recoil so that I can control the effects of recoil and spot my impacts, right? Not, oh, let me just add another 20 to 30 pounds. Um, and I get it. It's, it's a game, but for that practical precision rifleman, his goal is to be able to provide precision rifle shots downrange versus the typical rifleman, right? So, you know, I think, you know, the the precision rifleman is is someone that he has what he has, um, and, you know, he, he's really just focused on, all right, what, what is practical beyond reach that I can um, still keep within my wheelhouse of that allow me to still be successful. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, um, you know, I, I had a conversation and this goes into with like a, a army shooter yesterday, matter of fact. And he was talking about bigger companies that are more of the mil spec kind and like, would they make a precision you know, a, a precision rifle series, NRL, PRS, NRL rifle. And, you know, if you were going to make one to sort of win, it wouldn't really be practical for anything else. I mean, if you look at, say you got a, a, a pretty good three lug action that, that you, 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 you know, you pick your favorite action. Okay. I'm going to get this action. Well, then if you think about the, like the one, two, five straight taper barrels at 28 inches, and using a straight taper barrel in like a six millimeter and then having a chassis system like the ACC MDT with the weight system in it. And so now you have a, let's call it a 22 to 24 pound six millimeter. A, other than PRS and maybe like bench rest or something you might do in a bench rest type thing, but it wouldn't even really work in their, their lightweight or hunter category. What other sport or what other endeavor would that translate to? Not none. Yeah. And so what you're kind of presenting is, it's not so much run what you brung. It is, but at the same time, it's understanding that and using it for more than one purpose. You know, we yeah. can, if we all had the ability to kind of put a Ferrari in our driveway or in our garage and only take it out when we could... Well, that's that's okay. You got good disposable income. Now you could drive your Ferrari on the nice days. But for most of us, you know, we work five, six days a week. We, we we're going out and doing different things. We need a practical car. Yeah, and again, I have I have several race. I would call you know race guns, competition guns, right? That are I mean fully loaded out got the heavy barrel muzzle brake, right? Um, because I understand that in order for me to be, you know, a competitive competitor at the highest level, I got to play the game. Yep. Right. 
Um, but at the same token, it's like, all right, well, what training uh, objectives do I need to achieve when I'm actually attending a match or when I'm actually training, right? Um, and this kind of goes into what we were talking about earlier. It's like, you know, when when I schedule my training, you know, <clears throat> I try to train to be, you know, as well-rounded as I can, uh, you know, w- with any kind of application uh, that I'm going to use my long-range skill set for. So, you know, hunting, um, tactical shooting, and, and, uh, and precision rifle, uh, precision rifle shooting. Um, you know, I'm not focused on, okay, well, I'm just going to train to be a competitive rifle shooter, right? Because now what I'm going to lose, you know, and t- lose touch with is my ability to be a, a, a tactical shooter and a hunter, right? Because, you know, if I focus strictly on competitive shooting, well, a lot of my rifle is going to be probably six creeds, a lot of these six mils. I'm going to be, you know, touching off the uh, recoil or touching off my trigger, you know, versus actually applying a slow steady trigger press, so on and so forth, where obviously I'm on my hunting rifles, right? They're a lot bigger caliber, smaller frames. You know, it's, it's talking seven songs, right, 20 right. You're, 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 six, you're five, talking like a 10 pound rifle, 12 pound rifle <clears throat> versus your 22 pound rifle. And you're talking, right. you know, three times the bullet size. That's right. Right. So, you know, you, you just have to be, you know, uh, you know, cognizant about, you know, what you want to get out of the application of competitive rifle shooting. Um, and, you know, if you if you're if your goal is to be the next Jake Bibbert or John Pitch, you know, definitely more power to you. Right. Um, uh, it, you know, it takes a while, a while to get there. But, you know, enjoy the process. Right. Because, I mean, Jake and those guys have been shooting for, I mean, seven, eight years. And I was actually uh, Frank, I was actually looking at the sniper side the other day um, and miss all the all the stuff going on. And I had um, ran into your uh, divisions and breaking down the obvious um uh forum and yeah you know i'm a firm believer that you know the the direction of the sport is to break things down into um classes you know uh, and 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 right because in what i i basically said two classes a limited and an open and a limited that was only limited like the big limit was factory ammo only because then that allows people if they buy a Tika, they could change the barrel. If they have a Remington 700 and burn it out, they can get something else or change the chassis. And don't put a price tag on someone's equipment. Just put some basic sort of NASCAR rules. And, and you know, like with me in my in my limited class, I basically said, you know, you were in, and in limited, I said it was going to be an 18-pound rifle. And by that, I meant just the rifle. I don't count scopes, suppressors, bipods. I'm just talking the base rifle, no mag. 18-pound rifle, a 26-inch barrel, because 26 inches is about as long as you're going to get in a factory rifle anyway, and then factory ammo. And that would be your only three criteria for limiting a limited division. You got a rifle weight limit. There's no caliber or anything like that limit, but there is a barrel length limit, and then factory ammunition. And and so then with open class, you would can do whatever ever the heck you want and open I would still put a rifle weight limit there just because I mean to me you know if you're gonna have a sport any piece of any sport with a piece of equipment has restrictions on what equipment you can use and you want to try to sort of you know at least help 
somebody not just do a complete dollar gear race. You know, somebody can do a 30-pound rifle with a 32-pound barrel or 32-inch uh, barrel and, and the, some of the crazy stuff the guys were doing in the tactical class, you know, where they were doing 30-pound 308s. So for that, I would limit it a little bit, but not really a lot. And, and it just like kind of on the training side of things, like you're saying, and, and to be that well-rounded and practical guy, I mean, it's one thing to, to practice barricades over and over and over again until you got the barricade down and you don't even have to think about it. It's another thing to put somebody in like a competition dynamics field course where the position is almost identical to the barricade, but you don't have a barricade in front of you. So can yep. you still manage that in a practical amount of time? Can you get into that position? Can you make a stable position out of it? And then can you get your shots off and then get out of that position and move to the next place? So I, I look at the practicality in, in a couple different ways. Yeah, I mean, honestly, you, you don't need a, a, a eight $9,000 uh, rifle to jump into the sport and, and, and try to, and, and that's where I think the direction of sports are guys are, you know, jumping as quickly as possibly they can in the sport and trying to reach their way to the top. It's like, man, enjoy the process first, you know, um, bring what you got and just learn, right. Learn what, you know, um, l learn about your ability to deploy gear and, and stuff like that. Cause you know, again, pulling the trigger is, is, is not even close to, uh, 10% of the battle, right? Getting into position and all these other things, you know, before you actually, you know, side in and whatnot, whatnot. I mean, a lot of times people are overthinking that process up until that point, right? Yeah. <laughs> of, yeah. of the action of pulling the trigger. Um, and, you know, for people that are always knocking competitions and I, and I see it on, on your, on your page or on the, on the forums, like, well, let me ask um, you this: and, You and Kalen working like the modern day sniper approach in, in in the practical or this precision rifleman approach. Have you yep. guys thought about? And I have a little bit, and I'll get into that in a sec. But have you thought about some kind of qual that people can replicate on their own to say, "I consider this a a practical qualification for a well rounded shooter." And I bring this up because, like I mentioned it a few times on the podcast, Thomas Hagelin out of Norway, and he has the uh, a, a, like a vlog on YouTube. He doesn't talk in them, but he, he subtitles it and does things. But he has like a, a marksmanship standard for his people out there that's like a, a certain plate at 500 yards and where you hit, you know, kind of like from X ring to eight ring is determines sort of your ranking now I've been thinking about and I'll just back you know kind of back it up my side of it and then you can fill in I was sort of thinking of like you know a one to one and a half MOA qualification and I've been looking at it you know what would I recommend people to do who who have you know a 300 yard range and that's as far as they can shoot a 600 yard range that's as far as they can shoot eight or a thousand yards. So under that three, six, eight and a thousand, what are practical goals that could be replicated to say, if you do this and you can do, and you can repeat this, then you would become a precision rifleman. So have you guys thought about a qual of like to that degree? 
Yeah, Kaylin and I have a lot of uh, stuff coming in the works for the, uh, the modern day sniper. Um, you know, and uh, a, a lot of it, yeah, it has to do with kind of uh, training um, stuff that you can do at home to essentially evaluate your ability to essentially follow along with training um, that Kaylin's going to push out. So, you know, with every you know uh, training module and stuff like that, uh, he'll he'll push out. Okay, this is you know, what we, what we learn in the training. Okay. Now that now apply it. Right. And how well you apply it. Now you kind of rank yourself based off of, okay, well, uh, a pro would be able to get it done, you know, at this, at this time limit uh, with this amount of accuracy, so on and so forth. Is that kind of answer your question? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, your marksman or your rifleman. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think, right. Uh, you know, breaking that down, even the, even the target sizes, right. Cause it's like, all right, well, you know, if I've got a one MOA target out there and, you know, someone's able to get it done within, let's say, 30 seconds. OK, then that, that's a that's a professional shooter. Well, you know, a hunter doesn't really need that. Right. So, you know, you put a you put a, uh, you know, hunting size target out there. Right. You know, you t- kind of change the conditions a little bit. And that, you know, now you're giving him a realistic task for him to complete as well. Right. Um, or if he wants to even compete at that at that pro level. Right. It just makes them that, that much better. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so. you know, the funny thing is, I, I mean, and I get it and, and, and I'm going to be a little bit kind of like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm being a little bit of that guy. But at the same time, you know, when you talk to certain a certain aspect of hunters, they do push a speed element to it. I personally don't see it the way they do, but I'm not out there, you know hunting to live or do anything like that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've shot things. I don't go out and trophy hunt. And I do go out and see a lot of this stuff. I mean, we have all the speed goats on my range. I get the deer that come through, you, you know, so I'll see how they react around me. And I don't know if they're just used to me on the range or like even the Alaska, you see the animals coming across in Alaska, you see how they move there, you know, so I, I'm moving through that, 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 that area and, and you're seeing what they're hunting out there. And it's like, the window to me never really appears that small. That doesn't mean it's not always like that. And I get it. I'm being pretty generalistic here, but they do push a speed element to me that I don't know. I think I'd rather, and maybe it's because they're so used to 70 yards where we're used to distance and that distance gives us the time and opportunity because the animals just don't seem to react to me when I'm, you know, four or 500 yards away from them. Yeah. Uh, so that's one thing that I've, I've, I've realized coming into this hunting industry, right? And, and I'm not a hunter by trade. Um, and what I mean, hunter, I'm a hunter by trade because I've said that and like, well, technically you are a hunter. It's like, okay, well, yeah. two-legged critters right, versus right. four-legged critters completely different, right? Anyways, so, um, and, and I'll say it like this, you know, when, when you're, when you are training in your home environment, and I, I think I got this from you, Frank, when you're training in your home environment, you know, you set the conditions and how you train. You pick the targets you're going to shoot. You you set the conditions and the timelines. Everything is kosher for how you want to train, right? I mean, if it's if it's freaking windy and blowing and, and, and raining outside, you think you're going to go to the range still? Probably if not, right? Right, <laughs> right, right. If I can, if I don't um, have to, I'm not going to. Exactly. But now when you go on a hunt or you know you're in combat or whatever, right? The minute the opportunity of of that 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 presents itself you are now subjected to that animal's timeline and conditions so whatever position that you find yourself in 
whatever window that he has, right? I mean, really, it, it, really, you're going back to, okay, your lowest level of training. And, you know, for me, I, I think when you get into that point, the, the brain becomes challenged. And then obviously a lot of functions cease to, you know, um, cease to, you know, actually present itself, you know, so to bridge that gap is that competitive drive attending these competitions because you're going to a match director and you're, 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 you're going to his rules and his conditions and whatever and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, one thing I found with hunters, I mean, the average rifle hunter takes 20 to 10 to 20 rounds a year to shoot his rifle. I mean, and that's the typical, you know, just harvesting meat and stuff like that. And you and I both know in order for us to be proficient at long range, we have to shoot long range, right? Cause you could shoot paper hundred, 200 yards all day, but you know, right. It doesn't translate to a thousand yard hit. No, it does not. Right. It doesn't translate to making a wind call at four to 500 yards and uneven terrain, so on and so forth, especially out West. Right. I think out East, a little different out East, those guys, I mean, they're really shooting hundred to 200 yards. That's their law range. And I mean, they're shooting offhanded, right? I would never take an offhand shot out West. I don't care. I, I still stand by that statement. Um, you know, uh, two to 300 yards is no longer considered long range with the calibers that we have out there. Right. So anytime I, I, I have the ability to shoot something at four or 500, I'm always going to find some kind of front support on my rifle. I'm not going to try to throw my hand, my rifle up and shoot, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm back in world war one or world war two offhanded. You know what I mean? Like that shit's played, <laughs> that shit's played out, right? Modern day precision rifles and hunting rifles aren't meant to be shot like that at long range. Again, definition of long range, I would think is the the minute that you start have to account for uh, environmental factors in your uh, firing solution, such as wind and, you know, your, your, uh, your altitude. Um, so, you know, I, cause I have honors all the time. It's like, well, what, what if, uh, you know, he pops up at uh, 200 yards, it's like, you're not going to miss at 200 yards because of wind or altitude or temperature fluctuation. You're going to miss because of a bad trigger press. Yeah. Cause they freak right. out. I mean, we had the guys that came to class that inside a hunter have missed, you know, trophy elk and then came to class because they don't ever want to do that again. Yeah. You know? And so, right. There is no environmental at even the hunter. One guy I think was 130 yards. He said he missed one. And at 130 yards on an elk, you know, there, there's no condition that accounted for that, but you. Yeah, a- absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, um, well, how do, how do you, how do you get out of, you know, that, well, you got to identify the problem and you, you have to seek, uh, training, uh, you know, seek training from a, a professional that actually does this or actually attend competitions. Right. So that's why I'm a big advocate of, of competitions, you know, cause it really, I mean, it, it allows you to learn more about yourself than, uh, you know, you hear uh, a day of training, like you fight, <laughs> you know, you, you go to a day, you're like, Oh, I'm going to train how I fight. Yeah. And I would say that I, I learned probably just and go as back much. to the, the, the hundred pound rock on our back and let's walk all day and then let's fight. Yeah. You know, I, I learned so much about just my, my marksmanship abilities and at one competition, you know, than I did you know, after spending three or four years behind a bolt gun in the sniper community, right? It really opened my eyes. It was like, holy crap. I, I have no idea what the F I'm doing. I mean, not to that extent, but it was like, 
it was it was definitely a big gut check, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I learned, when I first went down to rifles only and, and coming out of the Marine Corps and the whole thing and then going down and seeing what they were doing and they're just starting this competition stuff, I was blown away at their speed and accuracy. Yes. You know, and at the time, they were shooting as fast as they could. I mean, not not so much different than today, but they were doing a lot of five-shot speed drills. You know what I mean? Jacob had the six plates at 600. He had the speed drills, and we were always looking at, you know, how who was the fastest guy to either do the moving chaos, which was timed as well with the mover and the Great different drill. things, or doing yeah. that six-plate speed drill and keeping it under the 20 seconds and coming out of the Marine Corps and seeing that for the very first time was like insanely illuminating, you know, like, holy shit, these guys are fast. And, and, and that's what actually brings me to kind of my next point, you know, uh, cause I, I see, again, I see, uh, what the hell is it? How do you pronounce it? Like troglodytes? The guys that yeah, yeah, like, troglodytes, yeah. troglodytes. <laughs> A prehistoric age. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you see them come on the forums and like, and you're like, oh, it's just fundamentals and blah blah blah. It's like, all right, you know, it's it's just fundamentals until I give you a 60 second time hack to complete that task, right? You know, it's all you know your ability to process those fundamentals at a rapid pace. Nowadays, I mean, it's completely changed, right? Yeah. Um, I, because of the sport, um, you know, because Scott Satterley and I talk about all the time. Well, you, you have shooter A that accomplishes the task, same exact task at 60 seconds versus someone that accomplishes the same exact task with accuracy at 90 seconds. Well, who's the better shooter? The guy that accomplished it at 60 seconds, right? So, you know, uh, for a practical shooter, you know, law enforcement, hunter, I mean, that's the name of the game to be able to get, you know, hits on target as quickly and efficiently as possible. I, you know, and I would, I would split hairs on that one a little bit. If I, if you said, well, I could do, if, if the time limit's 90 seconds and there's a guy who could do it in 60 and then the guy who can do it in 89 seconds and hit everything, I'd almost say that 89 second guy because he can manage his time a little better, you know? Yeah, and, that's and, true. But you know what I mean? I get what you're saying, though. If it was a race, though, the guy who could do it quicker, if there was a, if there was a, a benefit to the time, then the guy who could do it quicker definitely is going to excel. If you could do all the tasks faster than someone else, you're definitely a, a step ahead of them. But if, if, it's, if there's a time management aspect of it, I would say the guy who can use his time more effectively and and still get the hits because in my mind, and, and, and here's my backup for that, my why, is I think he'll be better in the long run where the guy who's fast, fast, fast will fall apart sooner. Unless he's, I agree with that. You know what I mean? Unless he's somebody young, I, stud. I, no, I, I agree with that. And, and honestly, the reason why I agree with that is because I, I, I found myself – actually um you know a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago um where you know I'd, i would never time out but i would get you know seven out of ten or whatever so you know moving getting ready to go to start competing in the following year you know my goal was okay the next couple of matches that i attend I'm, my goal was to time out uh, regardless of you know saving shots or whatever the case is like i, I want to time out and, you know, by having that mindset, I actually increased my, my accuracy. 
Yeah, yeah, and that and that's kind of where where I I try to balance that. And I, but I agree that these guys are so good. And and don't get me wrong, you got guys that can do like a barricade now. What are they saying? They're not going. They're cleaning barricades in like forty seconds or something. Forty seconds, yeah, yeah, and, and 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 that's outstanding. You know what I mean? But that tells me the barricade needs to change. Yeah. You know, that's kind of yeah, where I, I look at it from a mindset: is that 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 skill stage is no longer accomplishing its goal. Um, here's something that this is completely out of the, uh, out of the blue, but now that you brought a barricade, what are your thoughts on, um, like, so, you know, the, the precision rifle series has a series of drills, you know, specifically that PRS barricade that, um, you know, some shooters with smaller frames, so shorter shooters have an issue, um, you know, being able to accomplish the same task versus someone that's five ten and six foot, obviously, cause they have a height advantage. What's your what's your take on that? Uh, I think it's completely screwed up. I mean, that's a huge pet peeve of mine where a skill stage, something that's meant to build a skill, should be universal to all. And that was a case where if you go back again, go back in time to the rifles only days with barricades there. We did a barricade that was sitting, kneeling, standing. But we yep. didn't dictate where you had to be on the barricade. You just have to accomplish a sitting, kneeling, standing. And to me, forcing me to shoot off of something over my head to accomplish the same thing for somebody that's a foot under their head, that's two different things. Now, if you want to make that a normal stage and do that, okay. But as a skill stage, a skill to me is something that's universal. Where there isn't a weight to being taller, heavier, lighter gun, this, it should be those, you, you know, those universal positions and those universal skills that go beyond a body type or go beyond a caliber. You know, if you want to go and say a prone at 800 yards on a 2MOA plate, that's universal. You know yep. what I mean? And, and then if you want to say a kneeling position on a 10-inch plate at 400 yards, as long as the kneeling position is my comfortable kneeling and you're comfortable kneeling, that shouldn't matter. But now when you force me to kneel at Jake Vibbert's height, well, now I'm standing. Because if I'm going to kneel and accomplish a stage in the same position as him, I might as well just shoot that stage standing up because he's six foot five or whatever he is. And, you know, I'm five two. Well, now when he's kneeling down on that sort of up kneeling position, where if you just let me get low into my normal kneeling position, I'm going to be much better off because now I'm not struggling for it. So that's what I think with, with skill stages should be universal. I agree. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I think, you know, every time I'm, I'm actually, when I, when I do my class on alternate shooting positions, I have to, you know, I, I have them shoot off tripods because I make, I'm, I make them uh, work on that individual skill of their individual standing. Right. I don't, I don't throw up a barricade. You know, if I do throw up a barricade, it's to uh, replicate a, a natural terrain feature that you might have to adapt to. Right. Um, because now you're, when you're, when you're dealing with natural terrains in the field, well, now you're subjected to that position's height. Well, when you're working with tripods, you, you make the tripod you work make it for you. Your height. Right? 
Right. Exactly. Right. In, so in my I barricade, the barricade design I had, I had put forth and I had actually sent yeah. it to the PRS is two-sided. So there's a short side and there's a tall side. Yeah. And the only really negative to that would be would you'd actually have to switch sides. If you want to find the, the, the size that's perfect to you, you may find yourself swapping sides. Like I would do short side sitting, short side kneeling, but then maybe I'm going to do the other side for standing, you know, the taller that gets the standing in the same position. But there is a standing that would work for a shorter person as well as a standing that works for a taller. I don't change the height at the top. It's the same height as what they're currently using, but I have a lower one for someone like me, you know, or a child or something like that, a woman, a child, whatever the case may be. But then the kneeling is, honestly, it, it, the, the standing sucks for me. The kneeling is the bigger issue because I can't, I have to be up so high on the kneeling for the barricade, I might as well stand and shoot the kneeling position from the standing, just be like a really low, weird crouch, you know what I mean? And so yep. that's my kind of pet peeve with that, that they don't think about scalability to other people, they don't think about universal skill, and in skill stages to me, it should be change every year, like let's have three skill stages that are going to be the 2020 skill stages. Well, in 2021, they're going to change because I think people get so, you know, this has been the same skill stage for the last four years. It hasn't changed. And, and to me, I think everybody's gone beyond the learning ability of that and it needs to go to another. Plus, I think it's contrived to begin with to do kneeling, standing, standing, kneeling. You know, that's to it's like, well, why are we doing the same thing twice? Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, with the, again, just like anything else with the modernization and the evolution of the sport, well, the, the training and the skill set task should evolve with it, right? You know, we're not executing 90s day tasks, you know, and nowadays. So why continue to, you know, do something that was written, I don't know, maybe three or four years ago when the skill stage, I'm not sure when those actually it was Wiseman. Written, it was done when Wiseman <laughs> first took over the first year, Sean Wiseman. So I don't know when that had to be about four years ago. Yeah. You know, but, that, but they were great. I mean, if you look at, if you, I mean, when I first got on the sport, I remember when, when I was looking at times, I, I mean, I think the average time was about 70, 80 seconds. Right. I mean, it was, you were fast and you got it down to 60. Now you're slow. If it's anything over 60 <clears throat> in a clean. Yeah. Yeah. And, so. and, and that just goes to show that, you know, yeah, you can move the, you can, you can push people and they'll step up. And, and, and I never dispute that, that, you know, you, you can, you can put something out there and say, Hey man, you know, do this task and everybody will come to a point and it'll get better and better and better for them all. But then as soon as, you know, these top guys start to master it, flip the switch, the script on them, you know, and, and have them do something new now. And that's why I think it should be, I, and it's the disappointing thing when, when like with me and with some of the PRS kind of stuff is the fact that like, you know, it's it, right now it's based out of K&M with Shannon and everything. That facility is so built for this type of competition or the PRS competition that he could be putting out some, you know, really good visual information and to, and to kind of spin people up on what to do and how to do it because there really isn't anything on that K&M range 
that you'll find somewhere else other than what we have out west, which is the sort of the distance and field and then the wind. But the but prop wise, I don't think he doesn't there there isn't a prop he's missing. So he can go to like, you know, pick new props and do new things and say, hey, here's a new skill stage or here's a new um, you know, here's a way to to do this. And and you know, it, and it could be, you know, it could be showing an RO how to be an RO. It could be showing a new shooter how to how to negotiate an obstacle. And I don't think they do that. You know what I mean? And that's kind of been a pet peeve. Like you have a resource and you you're you're sort of like positioned yourself at the top of the pyramid, but what are you doing with that power? And I really yeah. don't see it, it it coming down the top of the pyramid to the base the way it should. It, it, what I found, and I haven't traveled that much east. Um, you know, I've, I've probably shot five or six matches out east. Um, but I, I would say for the most part, I mean, just like out west, um, it, it, it's all really, you know, um, you know, location based on the styles of shooting, right? Uh, take uh, uh, Carl Taylor's match, for instance. Great, great facility. When you when you hosted your uh, sniper side cup for uh, this year, yep, yep. The I mean, pop, uh, that that definitely bumped up to my number one shooting venue uh, that I've ever shot at, just because of how uh, I would say um, dynamic it was, right? Because I mean, we were we were shooting cross canyon, shooting three hundred sixty degrees, not just one way. So every time we moved to a stage, I mean, we were trying to figure out a new direction of wind and where that wind was flowing. You know what I mean? if we had a draft and whatnot. Right. Right. And, and, and that's, that's pretty typical of what you see out in West coast matches, my match, Utah matches, Idaho. I mean, when you go out, out and it's all, you know, built around natural terrain features and stuff like that. Sometimes match directors, what they'll do is they'll have a few props, you know, uh, to keep it, you know, right to mix um, it in. And I, and I, yeah, and to mix I have no in. problem with that. Yeah. And then, you, you know, you go out East, right? Well, a lot of it is, I mean, kind of firing in the same direction. Right. Uh, you know, small lanes, you know, usually, you, you know, you, you're able to usually see the targets uh, within the same field of view of binos. Yeah, they got berms, right? they got the lanes. Yeah. So you're not really getting lost in, in, in target acquisition and stuff like that. It's like, you know, hey, those are the targets and, and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, it, it really is, you know, you, you really just kind of build your skill based off of the, the region that you're in. You know, um, so that's why I really admire shooters that travel all the time everywhere that are, you know, constantly going out there, um, you know, um, and, and competing at the highest level because they're not just they're not they're, they're not just dominating the region. You know what I mean? They're, I mean, they're truly a, a national level shooter and competing at all spectrums of of the sport. You know, I mean, you can't say that you're a, a national level shooter if you just stick in one region. Right, right. right? If you won't, if, if if you collected all your points in one state or two states, yeah. you know, and they're down like in in their the Louisiana, <laughs> Tennessee. Well, then you know, okay. But what about all the rest of the country and places? Yeah, right. Um, so there's only four shooters that I know. I can I can count with my hand that actually travel you know, as far west to, you know, Washington, as far southeast as Florida, you know what I mean? Um, but there's, you know, 20 to 30 top level competitors I know, you know, out east and 20 to 30 competitors I know that's out west, right? But, you know, to really pick a handful of guys that travel, you know, from one end of the spectrum and, and stuff like that, I mean, there's not too many of them. 
No, no, so. I agree. No, it's it's good stuff, man. And 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 I do, you know, it it, it is it does pay off to compete and i've always said that it's just you know of course i you know i'll bitch and say well don't be a member of a series because you don't have to be but to me i don't think somebody should really get into that for the at least three matches you know what i mean three like their first three matches should almost be not i don't want to say throw away but in terms of points they should almost be a throw away and they should be looked at strictly from a training perspective and understand you're not really going to be in a competitive mindset until you get at least those first three under your belt. That's that's a th- that's I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. It's like, and I, I I can't stress it enough to my guys that I that I try to you know. And when I say my guys is you know my guys uh, that are still in the cyber community that are looking to just go out and compete. It's like, and don't even worry about what the, these guys are running. Like, don't worry about running a six five creed. Don't run like no run what you know. You know a 308, right? You know the M486, whatever platform. Like, if you can bring that with you, great. If not, you know, build one, you know, because that that rifle right there is going to be the best thing that you ever did uh, training-wise, you know, to just better your craft, right? And, you know, don't worry about where you place. You know, your your own goal when you attend a competition is figure out, okay, well, what are the gaps in my training now that I've been exposed to something like this? Because the next time you're ever going to get exposed to something like this, other than the military range, is when you're actually uh, uh, downrange and, and you know, um, bullets have the right of way, right? Where you're yeah. on a two-way street, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, you know, I, yeah. And, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And you and I are very passionate about this this sport and, and the growth of the sport. Um, I think you and I are very passionate about, you know, finding those new shooters and, and, and helping them figure out, okay, well, this is, you know, a good way to start. Um, you know, the, the top level guys kind of got it figured out uh, and, and they're on their own program. And, and, you know, my target audience is really not those top level guys. They, you know, they, you know, they're, they're at where they're at. My, my, my target focus is mainly, you know, the guys that are still in the community uh, and, and those shooters that are looking to jump into the sport. Yeah. So. I mean, totally. I honestly, we're, we're, nothing I say, I mean, doesn't, and I'm not trying to, but I mean, nothing I say is going to, really go do anything for that that top 25 you know crew it's it's the bottom 25 we're speaking to more so and you know there's context to to the conversations we're having that some people don't really get the context they think we're speaking to that top 25 or because we say it like this They'll, they'll, they'll go online and, 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 and crack the jokes about it. But at the same, it's like, yeah, dude, I'm not really talking to you. You know, I yeah. get it. You're, you're yeah. established. You're, you got your, you got your $20,000 sponsorship. You know, you got your Jersey on, you're all good, man. You, you know, you're not paying for stuff no more. I get it, man. You don't need me. You're not worrying about it. All you want is the PX section of sniper's hide to go sell what you want to get to the next level. I get that. You know, but it's all these other people. You can't leave all these these guys listening out there in the podcast. You can't leave yeah. all these shooters yeah. on the floor. You know, you got to bring them to the table and give them a chair. And that means, you know, not not being that kind of guy because you're a top 25er. Yeah. But 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 not all guys are like that. No, they're not, and yeah, and and yeah. and it's probably you know a ten percent kind of deal yeah. out of it. But you know, yeah, when you think about 
how vocal and how viral things can be, 10% can be huge if it takes, if, if, if it, if it catches wind, you know what I mean? That's true. That, it, that's true. It, it can, it can really resonate. And, and so it, it, that's one of the reasons why even small transgressions might get yelled at or snapped at because it's like, dude, if that goes viral, if that becomes the mindset you're actually doing a lot more damage than you realize. And I get it. I'm guilty of it. And I'm, and, and, you know, after the kind of the last blowout and talking with a bunch of people, it's like, yeah, right. I'll, I'll come around and, 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 and not be such a divisive sort of figure with it. But you know, that doesn't mean I'm going to shut up all the time. If I think you're fucking up, you know, like and one of the biggest things I brought up when, when we were in the discussions was like the ND policy and stuff. And it's like, dude, you know, how could you even let that be a thing where somebody says, yeah, if it's an ND, but you kind of hit the berm or you're not that far from the target, don't worry about it. It's like that should be a, you know, that should be a a a, a bedrock sort of, you know, thing that we're like, you know, that never changes. And the fact that you have people sort of bouncing between it's good, it's bad, it's good, it's bad. It's like, ah, that should have been stepped on early. Well, going back to the, the, the rifleman thing, you know, a, a rifleman, a true rifleman doesn't care what his trigger weight is, right? He, he learns it and adapts to it. And, and, you know, if it takes him, you know, six seconds to get a shot off on an unstable barricade versus one second, well, it's going to take all those six seconds. Right. You know what I mean? Because he knows the, you know, the implications if he were to use the ladder trigger and it, go, it, it touches off. You know, whatever the case is, you know, um, and again, not, you know, if, if you're listening to this and you think if the shoe fits and the shoe fits, but, you know, most of the guys that I'm, I'm trying to direct to is the guys that are looking, well, do I need a six ounce trigger if I've only been in the sport for, you know, three months? The answer is hell no. <laughs> right, right. And, and that's my um, point. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's the thing is. Is yet right, you know. I think like it should be about one and a half. Go 16, yeah. 16 to twenty four ounces, somewhere in there. Don't go below twelve, you know that kind of stuff, because it it can be a dangerous thing. If 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 you find that you know you're you're always moving to that trigger and and it's it's surprising you on that break, well then maybe consider a two stage. And lower it that way so at least you can marry up to it and, and you're not like just thinking about coming to it and accidentally firing it, you know, and, and that's the point. And it, but if you're an accomplished guy and you're a top 10 dude and you got a, a six ounce trigger, well, more power to you. I yeah. get it. That's that's a that's a tool for your game this, this, and you've mastered message, it. This, this message is not for you. Right. But I mean, if the shoe fits, then be triggered all you want. Right. But yeah. that's not. That, yeah. Right. I mean. Um, no, I, I'm with you, Frank. You know, I think a lot of time the, the message gets, uh, you know, um, misstrewed and, um, you know, I, I can't, I tell you a lot all the time offline that, you know, a lot of, you know, where I fit into now in the industry, I mean, really stems from what I learned on, from you at, at on CyberSide when I was a young sniper school instructor, you know what I mean? And, you know, what I'm really glad with is that our ideology, ideology, of this sport and this discipline kind of falls in the same line. Obviously that's why, you know, Kaylin and I also get along as well. And, and, guys and, and you guys, I mean, through the modern day sniper podcast and the stuff you're doing through modern day sniper with Kaylin, 
I think you're on such a great track where it, it'd be like if Frank got up and got abducted, abducted by aliens tomorrow and disappeared. Like, I know everything would be in a good spot with you and Kalen. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. yeah. And guys will sit around like, oh, they're just, they're just purists and stuff like that. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at the origin of the sport, right, if we, when we want to talk history lessons, right, the origin of the sport was, you know, really built by hunters and, you know, practical shooters, you know, right. law enforcement and military side. So, you know. I mean, it's pretty funny if you go back and look at some of the and, and you've been down there. I don't know if you'll be down there in February or not, but if you go down to rifles only and look in the bunkhouse on the wall of some of the pictures from like 98, 99, 2000s, where there's only like 10 guys shooting competition or, you know, like in 2003, you know, we might have 30, 60 somewhere in there early, early on. There was times when the entire line was AIs, you know. Everybody had AWs and stuff because Jacob had an AW and I had an AW and everybody carried an AW. And then the next thing you know, like we'll, we, did, I, I'm, I'm almost positive we have like a photograph of an entire sniper's hide rifles only competition where everybody's wearing or everybody's using an AI. And then even like I have like tack vests on and stuff. There's the one um, somebody posted them on uh, Facebook with Terry Cross and Jim Clark. And me and some other was, but I'm like completely like tack vest and kitted out. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, if you look at the evolution of the sport, it's, it's insane. I mean, four years ago, uh, three and a half years ago when I got into this, I mean, uh, we were trying to go as light as possible, right? You, you're coming out with marketing barrels, uh, manners came out with their, uh, uh, their carbon elite fill, right? We were trying to get our rifles down to, you know, 13, 14 pounds for maneuverability. I mean, just this last year, I, I was seeing on uh, the precision rifle blog, the average rifle weight is about 20, 22 pounds. Right. Right. It's like, you know, so that, I mean, that's the evolution of the sport, um, you know, as, as, as anything else, but, you know, in, in, in terms of the, the practical side of the house, it's like, you know, no, the, 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 uh, the, the mindset is still the same, you know. I'm, right, and it should I'm, be, I'm, and it needs to kind of stay be. that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, for for the for the for the practical shooters, you know, if this is a game to you, it's a game, you know. I, and I, you know, I don't knock you for it, right? But <laughs> you know, um, you know, for for guys that are looking to get in this 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 discipline, it's like, you know, don't don't jump in and expect to, you know. Uh, be at the top 20 right if you look um, the guys with, who do with, that well usually have a mentor yeah they do and they, they usually do. have somebody that pull brings them with them almost in their pocket it's like you got a top 20 guy who has a friend and he he's he's mentoring that guy every step of the way and then you see this guy that sort of comes out of nowhere and he's doing really well but if you look, most of those guys sort of followed really tight in the footstep of somebody really good yep. who, who was there with them. It, rarely do you see somebody who was sort of like out of left field who showed up and was a ghost at the match and nobody really knows who he is. And then, you know, two matches later, he's in the top 10. Rarely, if ever, can I think of that happening. 
Yeah, I mean, I had a great mentor. I have a, you know, a few great mentors down in SoCal, SoCal, you know, that they don't shoot as often as I do nowadays, but I mean, you know, I still look up to them. Um, you know, they give me a lot of good reloading advice and stuff like that because there's, you know, they still tinker and whatever, whatever. Um, but yeah, you know, I contribute a lot of my success now to the, you know, them kind of taking me under my wing. They take me under their wing and kind of show me how, how, uh, how the ropes were. No, so, for sure, man. So, um, hey, I kept you longer than an hour here. Usually we just do the hour and so, but we're kind of flowing yeah. pretty good. Is there anything no else that you wanted to cover? Uh, I know you you went and shot the NRL finale and, and a shout out to those guys and stuff. Uh, it, it looks like they had a really good season for themselves, um, you know, and, and so uh, congrats to that West Coast side of things for, 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 for what looked like a pretty decent year for them. No, uh, no, I appreciate it, Frank. Thanks for having me on. No, I, I, uh, you know, getting ready for 2020, um, you know, what I really want to do is just be a little bit more, uh, well, I still need to pick your brain on this to get a, get a little bit more active in your, uh, uh, sniper side. You know, a lot of my contents on, on, uh, Instagram and on Facebook, but after talking to Kalen, a lot of the traffic that he's been driving from, for modern day sniper has actually been from, from sniper side. So I'd like to get on there a little more, be a bit more active, uh, there, yeah, but, and, and like I you told know. you, I, I, if you ever need to, I could show you where to get it. But the videos on Facebook, you if you go into the advanced embed tag, there's an embed link, right? And there's an advanced yeah. little link. If you just get the, the, the straight URL for the video in the advanced tab, it'll drop right into Sniper's Hide form. You go to the media um, drop down for video, and it just opens a single line. You just drop that tag right in there and it'll embed Facebook videos right into Sniper's Hide. And I know I appreciate like Kalen coming on to the hide. I mean, honestly, the, 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 the amount of traffic is, is it's, it's foolish not to use it because you guys, you guys have such a great reputation and a lot of those people from Sniper's Hide and through the Everyday Sniper podcast are well aware of your ideology, you know, how it aligns with mine and, and so to that. So you have a very, receptive audience to what you're putting out there and all that. So for sure, use that resource to your benefit. But um, no, I just want to say, I mean, your content is just always on top. I'm always watching. It's really the only thing I look at at Facebook anymore. I'm barely on Facebook. Uh, you know, I've just kind of pulled back from it uh, quite a bit. But I do always look to see what you're doing. I look to see what Kalen's doing. I dig his photographs. I think his, his girl uh, does a lot of those too for him, I believe. But his content and his imagery is really good. Your video stuff is right there and to the point. So, yeah, definitely bring it. But I appreciate all that stuff you guys are doing right now. Yeah, no, let's, uh, you know, are you going to, I'm assuming you'll be at SHOT Show? Big time. Yep, I'll be there. Yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, you know, let's let's talk at SHOT Show. I'd like to, you know, uh, hammer a date down sometime in 2020 or even 2021. But I'd love to do a project with you, man. It's one of the things, you know, whether it be, uh, shooting or you know yeah i'll a, come up because if you're out of wyoming dude it's not i could drive up there and spend the time and yeah. cody's got good hotels the whole thing i can come right up with uh -huh. with you and, and and love to do a project with you i'll bring some All video right. stuff and we'll, we'll have a good time with it i, I love you to uh, uh sit in class too right you know kind of just from a, a hunter's perspective you know because one thing that i know uh, as an instructor that i want to kind of get back to is actually attending classes, you know, yeah. I've been the instructor for so long. It's like, are, are you going to do like Raton again? Trail. Are you going to have some Raton classes? Yeah. Yeah. In August. Okay. I can come in August is a good month for me. I could probably okay. try to come down to a Raton class 
and and, oh, and sit in on a Raton class. I'd love to do that. That that would be so exciting. Um, yeah. just to just to see it and be part of it. That that would be great. Okay, cool. Let's uh, we'll talk offline and yeah, work some dates on that. But, cool, man. Cool. All right. Hey, thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for being part of it. Thanks for Phil for for taking some time out on a Tuesday. Phil, Merry Christmas next week. Happy New Year. I'm sure I'll talk to you in between then. But uh, hope you and your family, uh, your kids, everything's good. And, and, and we'll be talking to you soon. Yeah, likewise, Frank. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on here, guys. And, uh, you know, hopefully you guys uh, got a lot out of this. And, yeah, we'll see you. We'll see you next year. Thanks, yep. Frank. All right. Stay online, dude. Later.